Appreciate that and your leadership with the music this morning. John chapter 18, John chapter 18. I have entitled today's message, Christ Confronts Pilate. I know it would seem that it is Pilate confronting Christ. But really, in a sense, Pilate is the one that's on trial. Yes, Christ is on trial. And there in the gospel accounts, there's a Jewish trial. There's a Roman trial. Within the Jewish trial, he appears before Annas, who is the true power behind the high priest Caiaphas. Annas, we'll talk a little bit more. I've talked about him a little bit already. There's his appearance before Annas, only recorded in the book of John. And then Annas will send him to Caiaphas, who is the actual office holder of the high priest, though he's really just a puppet for his father-in-law, Annas. So he appears before Caiaphas. Those are the stages of the Jewish trial. And then there's the Roman trial before Pilate. Caiaphas will send Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate will send him to Herod Antipas, who is the governor of the northern region, Galilee, where Jesus grew up, his hometown of Nazareth being in Galilee. And then he will appear before Pilate again. One trial, yes, two phases, a Jewish and a Roman, and within those there are, the, are these different segments of the trial. It's really Christ confronting Pilate here in John 18. Really, it is Pilate who is being confronted with the truth. In the Mosaic Law, in the Mosaic Law, God had established high standards of justice that were basically unheard of in the ancient world. I mentioned this morning in Sunday school the Code of Hammurabi which was around 1750 B.C., uh, there in Babylon, that discovery actually lends more credence. And and again, not that the Bible needs man's verification, but archaeology verifies what the Bible already says is true. So when they discovered the Code of Hammurabi in around, I don't forget it was, 18th, 19th century, I forget the year, they discovered that there had been very intelligent writing and organized systems of law around the same time that God gave the Mosaic Law to Moses. And again, verifying the truth regarding God's word and the verification of the Pentateuch, the Torah, as a historically factual written body of work, we know as God inspired, the very words of God recorded by Moses. But it just gives a little bit of a comparison. There were some rules of justice, some rules of law in ancient times that had been out there, but God set the highest standards of justice, of law and order, of right and wrong, of good and evil, because he is God. He establishes morality. He establishes right and wrong. It is his standard that is the ultimate standard. 
So the highest standards of justice that have been codified, preserved, and passed down for thousands of years are those of the Bible, God's Word. And as a matter of fact, biblical standards of justice were largely adopted by the United States in the establishment of the American judicial system. But as we have gotten further away from God and from the Bible, have we not seen a denigration of justice, of law and order in our society? Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20, Moses in his final sermon to the Israelites, in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, he summarizes in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, summarizes the basic principles of justice that were set forth in the Mosaic Law. In Numbers 11, God commanded Moses to select 70 elders of Israel to assist him in governing the Israelites. This council of elders eventually became what is known as the Sanhedrin, which is the religious supreme court, so to speak, that was functioning at this time, that was organized in its hatred toward Jesus, that is instrumental here in this series of trials or in the trial of Jesus. So the Sanhedrin is rooted all the way back to Numbers 11, where Moses selected the 70 elders to assist him in governing the Israelites. Of that 70, there were 24 chief priests, one for each of the 24 priestly divisions established in 1 Chronicles 24.4, and we also see it mentioned in Revelation 4 and verse 4. So 24 chief priests, one for each of the 24 priestly divisions, plus 46 more elders chosen from among the scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, to make 70. But the high priest would be the president, the chairman, the overseer of the Sanhedrin. That way there would be 71 voting members so that there could be a majority vote whenever a vote was taken. By New Testament times, here in the Gospel of John, by New Testament times, the Sanhedrin had become very corrupt with bribery, partisanship, political favoritism, political expediency, common themes, can I say, in our culture today. Politics had affected even the Sanhedrin, which was supposed to be a religious body for helping govern in a religious, in a spiritual, in a God-honoring way the Jewish people now had been corrupted by politics, even by bribes, by power. And so here we have the Sanhedrin, now with a high priest that could be promoted or demoted by the Roman authorities. So the Romans allowed the Sanhedrin to have some level of influence and authority. But Rome always held veto power. Rome always held jurisdiction, ultimately. 
especially when it came to capital punishment, when it came to execution. Obviously, under a theocracy, under the Mosaic Law, there were specific sins whose consequence was capital punishment, execution. But we know the Jews had gotten away from that, and then, of course, the Romans, they held jurisdiction, and they would ultimately determine if the Sanhedrin was okay with the execution of someone that the Sanhedrin voted to be served capital punishment. The Romans would ultimately decide whether that person could be put to death or not, which became an issue with the Jews because they didn't like the Romans deciding for them who should be served capital punishment or not. But, of course, the Romans, they wanted to hold the power, they wanted to hold the the strings, and they wanted to ultimately let the Sanhedrin know that they were the ones truly in charge. But the Sanhedrin had some influence. It had some authority, especially among Jewish religious affairs. But it was corrupt. And among those who were corrupt were the Sadducees, who were the leading priests. The Sadducees denied the supernatural They denied the supernatural events of the Old Testament. Yet they were high priests. They were the leading priests in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in the supernatural, but they were the strict legalistic sect of the day, holding to the details of the law in the Torah and having heaped upon the commandments of God, the commandments of men. And they were obviously criticized. Jesus exposed them in his teachings for adding to the true law, the law of God. And again, as I just said, heaping upon the doctrine of God, the commandments of men. And in doing so, in their legalistic, strict legalistic ways, they were deceiving the people. They were heaping burdens on the people. And they were not seeing the true law of God the way they should. So you have the Sadducees, you have the Pharisees. And then there are the scribes, lawyers. The scribes in that day were lawyers who were supposed to be experts in the Mosaic law. They, in a sense, were the interpreters of the law for the proper administration of justice. So you have religious groups, pious Religious groups, even those who were considered experts in the law, in the Old Testament, in the Word of God. And yet they were flagrantly violating the moral law of God and in many ways their own rules that they had set up for trials. Including a trial held after sundown. Remember, there was the group that came with Judas after dark. Judas betrayed Jesus. He's taken to trial. And now he is appearing before Annas. And then we'll go before Pilate, Caiaphas, and then Pilate. And the Sanhedrin, which was in some ways trying to be so pious and regulated by ceremonial aspects of the law, they are now even not just violating the moral law of God, but they are violating their own rules that they had set up in trials, holding this trial after dark, after sundown. 
This trial of Jesus was the greatest act of injustice ever committed against a person. He suffered unjustly, illegally, and inhumanely as the very Son of God. We hear a lot about justice today, don't we? And rightly so. God is a God of justice. But the greatest injustice ever committed was committed against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It brings whole new perspective to the meaning of the term justice, doesn't it? In a world today in which everybody tries to play the victim, in critical theory and intersectionality, and whoever has the most intersection has the greatest moral authority. So if you are a victim in certain categories, then you have greater moral authority than even God himself and what he has declared in his word. And we know where that has gone. To the point that people who are committing violent acts of murder are considered the victims in school shootings. And the blame is being placed upon those who hold to the truths of the word of God and are trying to live out God's morality established in his word and God's order and design for marriage, for men and women, for family, for society. It's turning the world upside down. Good is being called evil. Evil is being called good. And as we have rejected God and his word, we see law and order breaking down. We see the administration of justice that is not being properly executed. I'm thankful for men and women who serve in the judicial system, who are testimonies and who are lights shining for the cause of Christ, doing their very best to uphold the truths of God's word and to protect the justice system and trying to do so in such a way that honors the Lord. And there are people in all different places around the world who, and especially here in the United States, who are serving as Christians. And I think of Alliance Defending Freedom and other, like the Christian Law Association and, and some of the other Christian law organizations that are using the design and the order of our justice system to protect our religious freedoms, to defend those who are being unjustly accused in our society of some sort of discrimination or phobia, whatever they call it. And I'm thankful for those organizations. But we see in this trial of Jesus, we see the greatest injustice ever committed against any person from all time. And it was committed against the very Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he did so for you and me. He could have called 10,000 angels, yet he died alone for you and me. We see in this trial, we see Christ before Annas. Here Christ has been taken by this band of men, and he has been now taken before Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest. But everybody knows that Annas is the one with the real power. That Caiaphas is just the puppet on the strings. 
And so Jesus is brought before Annas. They want to know what Annas' opinion is about Jesus. So here we read in John chapter 18, in verse number 12, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was the high priest that same year. Now Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Last week we looked at Peter's denial of Christ. So we're going to skip over the next section of verses. And we're going to come down to verse 19 of John 18. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. So what are they after? What is Annas trying to prove? What is Annas wanting to do? He's wanting to bring a charge against Jesus that would make him worthy of death. So what are they trying to prove? They're trying to prove that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. That was what the Sanhedrin would ultimately try to pin upon Jesus as their charge against him that would make him worthy of execution, of capital punishment. But since the Sanhedrin did not have the authority to execute someone, there had to be a further charge or such evidence that the Romans would approve of this charge, of this accusation, of this violation of Jewish law to the magnitude that the Romans would approve of his execution. So there was somehow, some way, the desire of the Sanhedrin to raise the level of accusations of charges against Jesus to include sedition, insurrection, because those would get Roman attention. And then they were hoping to get the Romans to approve of Jesus being put to death. Now, Jesus had not been formally charged with any crime. It's interesting as we go through this trial that he was being arraigned, brought to court to answer charges without ever being indicted, formally charged. Already there is injustice. He is being arraigned. He's brought to court before Annas, before Caiaphas, to answer charges, and he has not been formally charged with those. He's not been indicted. Already there is a twisting of the rules of the trials. And there is already an injustice. So Annas questioned Jesus about what? About his disciples and his doctrine. Again, what is the accusation? Blasphemy. Annas is trying to find out, what about this Jesus? Who are his followers? What has he been teaching? Jesus' ministry had been very public. Let's go down to verse 20. Jesus answered him. When the high priest asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine, Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort, and in secret have I said nothing. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me what I have said unto them. Behold, they know what I said. 
There should have been no question as to what Jesus believed and what he taught because Jesus had been very open about it. He had taught in the public, in the public eye. There should be a multitude of witnesses that could call, that could be called to testify what he had said. And by Jewish law, witnesses were supposed to be called, witnesses were supposed to be called before a prisoner could be questioned. They're questioning Jesus, and then they're going to go out and find witnesses. That's backwards. That's wrong. And I've been a school principal, and I feel like at times I've been the prosecuting attorney, I've been the judge, and I've been the jury. And I did not have a CSI team. I didn't have any detectives and I didn't have anybody but a handful of teachers and the word of mouth of students sometimes. And it would be his word versus his word or her word versus his word. And I would get entangled in all of that, trying to serve justice. And there would be many times as a school principal and even sometimes as a pastor where you can't please both sides. You just can't do it. No matter what you do, you end up getting... Cursed by both sides. Here is Annas and Caiaphas violating, Annas in particular at this point, violating the very rules of justice. Questioning Jesus and then trying to go out and get witnesses. Jesus is calling him on it. Jesus, in his answer, he is calling Annas out for his violation of the rules of justice. They are now going to go out and try to find witnesses to try to prove what they have accused Jesus of. It's wrong. It's backwards. It's not according to proper administration of justice. Jesus was not obligated to give Annas information that could be used against him. We have, even in our law, in our constitution we can plead the fifth right you don't have to testify against yourself in a trial here is violation of basic rules of law and order and justice jesus again was not obligated to give annas information that could be used against him and jesus was reminding annas of the illegality of his actions in verse 22 what happens And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? Can you imagine in a court, in today's court of law, can you imagine someone being arraigned, someone being brought before the judge, and one of the security guards, one of the officers in charge of that person, when he speaks to the judge, can you imagine one of those security guards, police officers, just hauling off and slapping that individual who has been brought before? What, what would happen? It would be headline news. That person would be let off. I mean, all the injustice. I mean, his defense lawyer would get involved. Can you just imagine all that would be done? Jesus is slapped by one of the security guards, by one of the officers there. With the palm of his hand, Answerest thou the high priest so? Why? Because he knew that Jesus had exposed Annas Annas for his illegal actions, for his injustice. And when Jesus told them to bear witness 
of the evil, if there was any that he had done. Of course, there wasn't. They couldn't. So upon Annas coming up with nothing, what does he do? We see in verse 23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas had sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Isn't that just like what we do? Oh, I'm in trouble now. I've been exposed. I've been caught in my sin, in my wrong action. Somebody else's fault. Going to shift the blame, right? Going to make somebody else responsible. I remember dealing with students, and I remember dealing with parents, and they come into my, my office. I remember one dad in particular giving me a very, very hard time. His son was guilty with a capital G. But because someone had reacted to his son instigating, he wanted to make sure that his son was punished just the same as the child who had reacted to his son instigating. And we went round and round. And he wanted to make sure that in his mind that there was sufficient punishment for the retaliation as there was for the instigation. Jesus had done nothing wrong. He was completely innocent. Annas knew it. He knew he had violated the terms of justice. He knew that he had violated. He was illegal in his proceedings. And so what does he say? Maybe Caiaphas can deal with him. I'll push him off. I'll pass him on. Blame shifting. Not wanting to take responsibility. Not wanting to own up to one's mistakes, to one's wrongdoing. Don't we get just sick and tired of that in politics? Boy, sometimes I wish I could be a politician. I don't. I don't, believe me. But sometimes I wish I could be a politician. Because then I wouldn't be responsible for anything that I ever did that was ever wrong in any way, shape, or form. It would always be somebody else's fault. Right? It would always be the other party. It would always be the media. It would always be whoever. But it wouldn't be me. I never did anything wrong. I mean, I, I, I've, again, I've dealt, I've dealt with students that way who just proclaim their innocence up one side and down the other, even though they are guilty as all get out. And sometimes in my frustration, I would tell the student, boy, I wish I was as perfect as you. Because I've done things that are wrong, and I've had to admit to them, apparently you are the perfect model student. You want me to go in there and tell the teacher how wonderful you are and how perfect you are in every way? You ought to be the most decorated student in the class. They would look at me like, well, you know, you know. Okay, well then admit. Annas won't admit. He pushes him off to Caiaphas. Now, Matthew 26 and Mark 14 gives the account of Jesus before Caiaphas. John, by the inspiration of God, does not give us the details of this account before Caiaphas like Matthew and Mark do. Okay, John then skips to the first appearance before Pilate. We won't go to Matthew 26 and Mark 14 and go through all the details. But we come back and we look at verse 25, or excuse me, verse 28. We have another parenthesis where Peter betrays Christ, denies Christ. We talked about that last, last week, the cock crew, verse 27. We know from Luke that Jesus, excuse me, that Peter, upon Jesus making eye contact with Peter, upon Peter denying Christ the third time, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He repented of his sin. Later we'll see where Christ forgives and restores Peter. But verse 28, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early. 
And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So this part of the trial, we've had the Jewish trial with Annas and with Caiaphas. Now we're entering a Roman phase where now Jesus is appearing before Pilate. And notice it's in the hall of judgment, also known as the Praetorium. This would have been the headquarters of the commanding officer of the Roman military or the headquarters in that area for the Roman appointed governor. So it would be Pilate's headquarters when he would come to Jerusalem, as he would often do during feast times, because they wanted to make an appearance at the Jewish feasts so they could strut around and show off their pomp and circumstance and let them know who's really in charge. Okay, they would be very public and they would let the Jews know, hey, don't forget, we as Romans, we're the real authorities here. You can have your feast, you can have your celebration, you can enjoy your time. But remember, we as the Romans are the ones who could take you out at any time. We're the ones who really have the authority. So they'd have a headquarters. So, of course, there'd be Roman soldiers who would help keep the peace. And now Pilate is there at the Hall of Judgment, the Praetorium, and they bring Jesus to Pilate. Here is Pilate's political headquarters. His actual palace would have been in Caesarea down by the Mediterranean Sea, the palace that Herod the Great had built. We know that before Caiaphas, false witnesses had been brought in. Their testimonies did not agree. Mark chapter 14, verses 56 and 59. No doubt there have been bribes that had been given to the witnesses to bear false witness against Jesus. So the accusation was that of blasphemy before Caiaphas, before the Sanhedrin. And according to the Sanhedrin in Mark 14 and Matthew 26, Jesus was guilty of blasphemy, obviously a false charge, trumped up charges based on false witnesses. But because the Sanhedrin did not have the authority to put Jesus to death, they had to get Roman approval. Again, John 18, verse 31, Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So the Jews knew they had to get the Romans to come on board and to approve of Jesus' execution. So there had to be something along the lines of sedition or insurrection to get the Romans to come down hard on Jesus and to issue a declaration of capital punishment, of execution. Verse 29, Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. What do they say? They don't come out and make a list, do they? Because he's innocent. He's perfect in every way. So they call him now a malefactor, an evildoer. They're calling the very Son of God, the Messiah, an evildoer. Accusations that are false. And they say it in such a way, Pilate, if we didn't know what we were talking about, we would have never brought him to you. They don't give direct answers, do they? They don't give a list of charges, do they? Because they know that they are liars. And sometimes that's the way we are with our sin. We try to step around. We don't call it what it is. And our culture is very good at all the euphemisms and all the different ways that we try to gloss over our sin and not, again, take responsibility for our choices before a holy God 
and refusing to take personal responsibility. And the Jews were, the Sanhedrin was trying to step around. Hey, Pilate, we wouldn't have brought him if he weren't an evildoer, right? They're liars. The administration of justice is illegal, unlawful. It's, inju- it's unjust. But they didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. So they're trying to get the Romans, trying to get Pilate to come down with some sort of ruling for the prosecution of a capital offense that would then lead to Jesus' execution. So then we come down to verse 31. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore send him, and it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Verse 32, That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. In God's providence, man in his own choices, in his own activity of his own sin, Man is fulfilling a prophecy of God, of Jesus, of how he would die, that he would be crucified, which was a Roman form of execution. Because what would the Jews have done if they had executed him? He would have been stoned, like what happened with Stephen in the book of Acts later. But Jesus would die by crucifixion, which was a distinctly Roman form of execution. Cruel, public demeaning, inhumane. We don't have crucifixion much anywhere in the world today. If it is practiced, it is practiced in barbaric pagan societies. Something that Christianity has had an influence upon in the world. And back in this day, Geneva Convention didn't exist. Rules of war, we have concerns about what's going on in Ukraine With Putin and war crimes, we've had Nazi Germany and the Nazis been punished for war crimes or there have been sentences for war crimes. Here's war crimes. Inhumane actions committed against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was a victim, but not of his own making, completely, perfectly innocent. And again, with all this talk about injustice, what is the right perspective? We have committed the injustice against God. We are the sinners. We are the transgressors of the law. We are the ones guilty who deserve the punishment of eternal hell. And Jesus Christ is stepping in as our substitutes, paying the penalty for our sin. And we see injustice after injustice after injustice. We continue. Verse 33, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Art thou the king of the Jews? John records three questions by Pilate asked of Jesus. And here we see John emphasizing the theme That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the King. He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. And that's again why I say it's ultimately Pilate that is being confronted. In a sense, it's really Pilate that is on trial. Because Pilate's going to have to be confronted with the truth. With his own sin. And he declares in his question, Art thou the King of the Jews? 
And Jesus answered, verse 34, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? The first question was regarding the claim that Jesus is king of the Jews. Jesus answered, thou sayest, it is as you say. That's ultimately how Jesus is answering. Sayest thou this thing of thyself? It is as you say, is literally what Jesus is saying in reply. And then he has the question of his own. Or did others tell it thee of me? Did others tell you this? He asked Pilate if he had learned this on his own or if someone had told him this. Pilate acted offended, didn't he? Pilate acts offended by the question. And he replied, am I a Jew? He answers there in verse 35. Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Question number two. Pilate's trying to avoid the issue. Pilate's beginning to squirm. He knows he has an innocent man in front of him. And then he asks a second question there in verse 35. What hast thou done? And we see here in verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. What a powerful verse. What a powerful statement. The eternal truths, the eternal realities of Jesus Christ being King of Kings, of being the Messiah, whose kingdom is not of this world, Jesus declares before Pilate that very truth, that my kingdom is not of this world. And he says to Pilate, if my kingdom were of this world, and this is, I'm going to interpret this, this is not the the King James interpretation, okay? But Jesus is saying, Pilate, you wouldn't stand a chance. If I called the armies of my kingdom, you wouldn't stand a chance. What was he putting Pilate on notice of? In a very compassionate and a holy, loving, kind way, Jesus is gripping Pilate's heart with the reality that Pilate really isn't the one in charge. God is. And he is looking at the very Son of God, God the God-man, and being faced with the reality that he ain't the one in charge. And pardon me for my bad English, but my point is, don't we get like Pilate? And for any of us to truly be born again, we have to come like Nicodemus did, broken before Christ in John 3, and Nicodemus in all his pride questions Jesus and he says, you must be of God. No man could do all these things unless he were of God. And Nicodemus had to come to that reality that he was not the one in charge, even though he had power, even though he was a member of the Sanhedrin. We know Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea claimed the body of Jesus later, showing that they were true disciples of Christ. But here's Pilate, a man with Roman power, with Roman authority, 
And he had to be broken before Christ before he could come into God's kingdom. He had to come by the way of Jesus, but in his pride, he's questioning Jesus and is saying, who are you? Who do you think you are? And Jesus is flipping the script on Pilate, helping Pilate to see in his love and his compassion that Pilate, you're the one who needs to be saved. You're the one who is ultimately on trial. You're the one who must come and recognize who I am in truth, in reality, in order to be truly saved. Because if I were to bring my kingdom and its armies, you wouldn't stand a chance. But Pilate, to us, by the preservation, the authority of God's word, God's kingdom is not of this world. Else would my servants fight. In the news, in the news, just this past week, a Major League Baseball team, and I don't know when they're going to do this, sometime in the next month, from what I understand, a Major League Baseball team is going to give a celebrity honor, a celebration honor, to a perverted, blasphemous group that mocks and blasphemes our Lord and Savior in the truth of Christianity in ways I cannot even describe from this pulpit. I won't say it in mixed company, some of the things I've heard. And we should be angry in righteous anger. We should be. And we should resist that. And if we can boycott, let's boycott. I wouldn't support that team anyway. I can't stand that team for other reasons. That just puts another reason on there for why I hate that team. Sorry, in a sports hatred, in an athletic hatred, not in a wrong hatred. But that team is going to honor blasphemy and celebrate it. And we should be angry. And maybe we have to boycott and not spend our money in certain places. And rightly so. But ultimately, who is our trust? God. We're not going to go out there and take our swords and our spears and our guns and our knives and commit acts of violence. What did Peter try to do when Jesus was taken He cut off the servant's ear and he rebuked Peter, put the servant's ear back on and said, this is not the time to take up the sword and fight. There was a dispensation when God called the Israelites to go take the land of Canaan. We're not in that dispensation. Our kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of heaven. We trust the God of the universe. And we go out and we live for the Lord in obedience and faith and faithfulness. And we come and worship and we obey the commands of God and we live by his principles. And that is how we take forth God's kingdom. If that were another religion, we know very well certain religions that if they were blasphemed the way that Christianity in the Bible is, and if their leader was mocked and blasphemed the way our Lord and Savior is by that group, there would be acts of violence. There would be war, if you know what I mean. 
But we look to a higher authority. We look to God. And we do everything we can in our power to resist, to stand strong, to take the political and the legal ways in which we can. We boycott or whatever we can do in a right way, in a loving way, in a way that furthers the gospel because we know that it is the gospel that furthers Christ's kingdom. And it is righteousness that makes up God's kingdom. And as citizens of heaven, following our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are to model our lives after him. And we are to live like Christ lived, who saved us. And we're to be faithful, righteous, obedient citizens of God's kingdom while we live as pilgrims and sojourners in this kingdom. Remembering that ultimately we're to live for the eternal. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. We're to walk worthy of the calling which we have called. We're to set our affections on things above. And we're to keep Christ preeminent. Pilate was confronted. He was confronted with who Jesus is. He was confronted with what Christ had done. He was confronted with the fact that Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at Christ confronting Pilate with the truth. When Pilate asks another question, what is truth? An important question that we all must face. But we're out of time this morning. We'll conclude here with our heads bowed and eyes closed. As we come to the Lord in prayer, as we bow our heads and close our eyes, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we bring this message to a conclusion. Lord, we have been faced with the reality that Pilate was faced with. But Lord, as believers, as blood-bought saints, we know and we believe and we have experienced and we have the reality as believers of our faith in Christ, of our, our trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. And Lord, we're, we're, we're saved people and we are part of your kingdom. But Lord, we face, in a sense, pilots of this world and Lord, we need your strength to live righteously, obediently, and faithfully to be strong in the Lord and the power of your might. Thank you for the example of Jesus Christ in this time of trial. But Lord, maybe there's someone here who's like a pilot and they're in an unsaved condition. And they're faced with the reality of who Christ is. And today, Lord, may they repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you will bless your word. Lord, deal with us, convict us, move us, shape us, Lord. But Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, has not come to saving faith, Lord, may today be the day of their salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.